listening to Ohio V, the world, an Ohio history podcast. The only podcast dedicated exclusively to the history of the Buckeye State. Subscribe to the show on iTunes and Stitcher. And don't forget to rate and review us. Join the conversation now at Facebook. Stream and donate to the show at OhioVTheWorldPodcast.com. Now, here's your host, Alex Hasty. Hey guys, welcome to Ohio vs. the World, an Ohio history podcast. Welcome to our first episode. Be sure and rate and review the show on iTunes and Stitcher and TuneIn Radio and join the discussion on our Facebook page. We're going to be talking about the shootings on May 4th, 1970, the tragic shootings at Kent State University. And we're going to look at Ohio versus the Nixon administration. We're going to look at the week leading up to the shootings. We're going to talk about the events following the shootings, and obviously we're going to talk about that day, that Monday, that Monday afternoon at 12.24 p.m. Those 13 seconds where 67 shots rang out of the rifles and pistols of the Ohio National Guard into the students some well over 100, 200 yards away on the commons at Kent State University. If you think our country is divided today, and it is, don't get me wrong, it's very divided, but I'm going to argue today that at no time in our country's history since 1865, since the end of the Civil War, has this country ever been more divided than it was those weeks in the spring of 1970. The country was as close to a revolution as it has ever been. The shootings at Kent State being the flashpoint for that. Protests all over the country before explode after the shootings and four are killed and nine are wounded at Kent State. And Kent State University was shut down, Ohio State. Thousands of college students, hundreds of colleges go on strike following the shooting. We'll talk about all that. A reporter, days after the shooting, asked President Nixon, do you think the country is heading to a revolution? I don't think you'd hear somebody ask President Trump that today. We're going to look at two stories. We talked with Larry Disbro, who's a student who was there that day, there that entire weekend. And we're going to talk with Dean Kaler, another student, a freshman at Kent State who was attending his first ever anti-war rally when he was shot over 100 yards away by the Ohio National Guard. And it's clear after speaking with Larry and speaking with Dean that even 46 years later, those emotions from that day, from May 4th, they're still there. They still live with that. One thing we'll do every episode on Ohio vs. the World is Ohio has some great craft beer. So we'll enjoy a craft beer that you should try every episode. Today's beer for the episode, we're going to be enjoying a platform brewing company. They're up in Cleveland. They've actually expanded to and opened a tap room in downtown Columbus. Platform is a great brewery. They make awesome sours. I'm a big sour beer drinker. Um, they're releasing a sour every month <clears throat> for 12 months. Um, but today we're going to enjoy the platform beer. It's called Lawlessness, Platform Lawlessness. It's a dark, it's basically a coffee a coffee beer. I mean, it's the Roma's roasted coffee, uh, kind of cocoa beans, has a real almost cappuccino-like finish. Um, it's only 5%. It's a beer that you can drink. It's not as heavy as some of these, as the beer might look as dark as it is. They say it pairs well with the uh, 
the chilled air of Cleveland's weather this time of year here and we're in February. Um, but it is a great beer and just try all the platform beer companies, uh, brews. Like I said, they have a spot in on the near West side of, of Cleveland. They have their own brewery and, uh, and tap room. And then it just opened one down here in Columbus that everyone's raving about. So check out platformbeer.com and their beer lawlessness, which is our beer for the episode here today. So we're going to go back to 1970. We're going to play you the sights and the sounds. We're going to try and put you there on the commons on Monday afternoon, May 4th. And how close it was to even being worse of a situation, even though it was a complete national disaster. We're going to talk with two people who were there, who had very different experiences, but still very important experiences. We're going to show you how this country came so far off the rails by the spring of 1970. We'll look at how the government turned its guns on its own citizens and murdered peaceful protesters at Kent State University in Northeast Ohio. So fire up the Wayback Machine. We're going to go look at the time when four dead in Ohio changed the world when Ohio took on the Nixon administration. People were lying on the ground bleeding to death. There were people on the ground who could not get up. Bullets were actually, I could hear them going right into the ground. And then I thought, oh God, this isn't good. Then all of a sudden I got hit. We are going to eradicate the problem. We're not going to treat the symptoms. This country is not headed for revolution. I remember jumping on the ground, covering my head, hoping I wouldn't get hit. Then I realized that all these bullets were hitting the ground around me, and I'm wondering, why are they shooting at me? Yes, I do. I'm sorry they didn't kill more. One of our guests today, Dean Kaler, he actually saw Nixon speak during the 68 campaign with his high school government class. And Nixon speaks about his secret plan to end the war. It's not a plan to win the war, it's a plan to end the war. It looks like the real plan to end the war is to escalate the war. And as Nixon would argue, to then be able to negotiate from a position of strength. But this country's in no mood for an escalation of the war, or even a continuation of the war. They already basically forced LBJ out of office in early 1968 as he announced he wouldn't make another run as his approval ratings in the quagmire in Vietnam had brought his approval ratings so low that he decided he couldn't make another run or didn't want to be president anymore. This quagmire of war is handed over to Nixon. 1969 is another year like 68. But the war and the war dead scrolling across the televisions continue. If Nixon has a plan to win the war, he's not explaining it very well to the country. Protests continue. They get larger all over the country. And people are looking to Nixon in 1970 to see what can be done to change this, the tide. We're not winning the war. And Nixon is determined, okay? He is determined, this is a very important fact, to not be the first president. He says this to his aides. I don't want to be the first president to lose a war. The best way to not lose a war 
is to win the war. Nixon decides in early 1970 to escalate the war and take on the Vietnamese army, the Viet Cong, that is stationed across the border in Cambodia. They're operating out of Cambodia for operations in South Vietnam, the safety across the border, although the U.S. is secretly bombing Cambodia, no one knows this, the American public doesn't know this, Nixon has escalated that already. And on April 30th, he talks to the nation about an escalation of the war into Cambodia. This is the decision I have made. In cooperation with the armed forces of South Vietnam, attacks are being launched this week to clean out major enemy sanctuaries on the Cambodian-Vietnam border. This is not an invasion of Cambodia. The areas in which these attacks will be launched are completely occupied and controlled by North Vietnamese forces. We take this action not for the purpose of expanding the war into Cambodia, but for the purpose of ending the war in Vietnam and winning the just peace we all desire. We will not be defeated. We will not allow American men by the thousands to be killed by an enemy from privileged sanctuary. My fellow Americans, we live in an age of anarchy, both abroad and at home. We see mindless attacks on all the great institutions which have been created by free civilizations in the last 500 years. Even here in the United States, great universities are being systematically destroyed. I would rather be a one-term president and do what I believe was right than to be a two-term president at the cost of seeing America become a second-rate power and to see this nation accept the first defeat in its proud 198 history. The country goes crazy on Thursday night, April 30th, after his speech. The man who promised to get us out of Vietnam now has us invading another country, Cambodia. He's promising an escalation of the war. Troops, hours after the speech, do cross over into Cambodia and it's fierce fighting. There are thousands of Viet Cong waiting for them. They are seasoned fighters. They know, the, they know the terrain. They know the areas they're fighting in. And hundreds and thousands of Americans are killed, as are obviously South Vietnamese. Who are there, or North Vietnamese? Who are there? Nixon's correct. They have moved their operations into Cambodia, and they cross and come and go across this border as they please, night and day. But the people, the protesters, the students, they don't care. They've had enough. And massive protests break out on May 1st, that Friday. Which takes us to Kent State University. On Friday, May 1st, our guest Larry Dispro finished a political geography class and walked out to the commons and heard the victory bell. The victory bell was ringing and that kind of drew my attention and I went over and um, there was a speaker and he was standing up on the, on the, uh, on the bell itself, up on the, on the platform and was uh, uh, portable mic was saying that, uh, well, since uh, you know President Nixon had violated the Constitution uh, and the Constitution was dead, let's just give it a nice burial. And at that point, somebody was had, was, had, had dug a hole and they dropped the symbolically dropped the the Constitution into the hole and 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 buried it up. And a lot of cheers and hollering. And it's one of the first warm nights of the year. It's May first, nineteen seventy, in Northeast Ohio. The mayor 
worried about all the violence throughout the country that day, decides to basically clear out the bars. The bars are just, you know, just a few blocks away from the main campus, downtown Kent. And it's this idea of, of gown and town, towns versus gowns. The townies of Kent have never gotten along with the, what they believe to be over-liberal, over-privileged students, the long-haired hippies I was talking about earlier. But the mayor, who doesn't really think about the unintended consequences of his action, basically clears the bars on Friday night and demands everybody to go home. The police are there, and they will kick everyone out of the bars. But what they do is they kick everyone onto the streets, and people are furious. People don't understand why they're getting kicked out of the bars. It's uh, like if you've ever been to Ohio University on Halloween night, they used to have the time would change, and they would throw people out of bars. Um, the time would fall back, and they would throw people out of the bars at 1 a.m., and it was OU's big Halloween celebration. they put people, force them onto the streets, and there would always be a near riot every year until they figured out how to deal with that better down there. Um, but everyone's forced into the street, and a lot of bad stuff happens. When I say bad stuff, so a couple of a couple of bad apples start throwing bricks through storefronts. There's rioting. There's a lot of fighting between townies and students. It boils over again into the streets. There's a lot of damage done, a lot of broken glass, a number of people arrested, a number of people taken to the hospital. But a riot breaks out in downtown Kent on Friday, May 1st. As we rode into town, um, the pavement downtown was wet. Uh, the lights were out. There were windows that were broken. And it was fairly deserted. I mean, there was really no one around. And I thought, my first thought was, tornado. We've been hit by a tornado because we've been inside all this time and, and uh, did not... Um, did not know that there was anything wrong but as we rolled on up what we did is um, since I said the word tornado my fraternity brother Dean Scott he um, he ran a Ohio station which uh, for those from Kent would know that that was that was located across um, Main Street across from Moulton Hall that's right down there and I, I think it's a fast food store there now but uh, his Ohio uh, gas station was there so we thought he wanted to go check it and, and what the heck it was already almost three o'clock in the morning and so we started running down front of campus and right right before Rockwell Hall Sheriff's Department pulled us over and uh, uh, came up to the window and said what are you boys doing out and um, uh, martial law had been declared that um, there had been a disturbance downtown and that's what all the damage was from. Saturday morning comes, and the town starts picking up the pieces. What's not reported is that a lot of students come downtown Kent and help people board up storefronts and pick up the glass and and throw everything away and clean up after that after that basically melee in the streets on Friday. We asked Dean about Saturday morning and Saturday afternoon um, and what he remembers. And then Saturday course Saturday uh, you know we had the light of day and we saw some of the damage and you know yeah as as most places are you know not every college kids a stupid crazy uh, rioter and many college kids went down and helped the uh, the merchants uh, clean up That's and right. replace uh, 
well, not necessarily replaced, but board up their windows until they could get replacements on Monday and Tuesday. The National Guard, which is up in Cleveland, dealing with a strike and some violence in Cleveland, has put on notice that Kent State might be the next objective. we got to be ready to mobilize if called upon by the governor, if called upon by the school. And Saturday, things take a turn for the worst. Students begin marching through campus, and they march to the ROTC building, where, depending on who you ask, the students are believed to have set fire to this old wooden barracks. It was scheduled for demolition anyways after the school year, but the ROTC building is set ablaze, and it goes up like a tinderbox. And the fire department's called. The fire department takes forever to get there, and the, the, the fire's out of control by the time they do. They start to put it out, and it's said that students, or at least people who were there, student agitators, whether people actually did come in from out of town, um, they start hacking the fire hoses. And the fire department is, is fighting with people who are, who are basically cutting off their water supply. This is not... This is not amateur stuff. This is not peaceful protesting, okay? Setting fire to the ROTC building, if that's what they did. Hacking the fire hoses, if that's what they did. This is the kind of stuff that the Nixon administration has warned us about. This is the kind of stuff that turns the country against the protesters, okay? But this is what happens on Saturday night, and the campus is covered in smoke. The National Guard is called in on Saturday night. Another important person in this story is Glenn Frank. He's a geology professor at Kent State. And that weekend, he serves as kind of a faculty marshal, a go-between between between the protesters and the students and and the police and, and ultimately the National Guard. Frank was there on Saturday night when the ROTC burned down, that chaotic scene, and there has always been somewhat of a mystery of who actually, what happened to the RTC building. How did it set fire and who set fire to it? We asked uh, Larry Dispro about that. Well, Glenn Frank, um, he uh, taught geology 160. And I think he's the reason that many, many students changed their major to geology because he was such a dynamic individual. And uh, it was one of those core courses, just like English, that I think every freshman had to take. And so he just knew, I mean, he just knew his students. And he said he did not, uh, that these, uh, I'll say miscreants, I don't really mean that, but they did not recognize recognize the students that were causing the damage at at the ROTC building. The burning of the ROTC building changed the game. And on Sunday, as the calendar turns to Sunday, May 3rd, 1970, the National Guard, the Ohio National Guard, starts showing up from Cleveland in droves throughout Sunday morning and into into the afternoon. Another arrival comes to campus on Sunday morning, May 3rd. That is Governor Jim Rhodes, the hardline, law and order, longtime Republican governor of Ohio. Here's about the burning of the ROTC. He's in the final weekend of a, of a primary campaign. It's the first Sunday in May, and the first Tuesday in May is primary day in the state of Ohio. He's running for Senate in the Republican primary against Bob Taft. Taft, the, senator's grand, the former president's grandson, 
has a seven or eight point lead on Rhodes heading into the final week. All polling seems to indicate Taft's going to win rather easily. But Rhodes decides to take a chance. He sees an opportunity and never let a good crisis go to waste, as like any good politician knows. He makes his way to Kent State, and he decides to tear down the students and the protesters. He calls in the National Guard, surveys the scene of the burned-down ROTC building, and makes a speech to antagonize those protesters and to win votes in the primary, which is only two days away, from those silent majority, those Nixon voters, those law and order voters that he's reaching out to to try and close the gap against Taft. Governor Rhodes, who visited the campus this morning, called it the worst violence in the state of Ohio and promised to crack down on those involved. I think that we're up against the strongest, well-trained, militant, revolutionary group that has ever assembled in America. These people just move from one campus to the other and terrorize a community. They're worse than the brown shirt and the communist element and also the night riders and the vigilantes. They're the worst. We are going to eradicate the problem. We're not going to treat the symptoms. Some classic fear-mongering there by the governor. We asked Dean Kaler kind of what the governor's comments that he made on Sunday morning, how they set the mood at Kent State the day before the shooting. He abdicated his throne to the governor, and the governor then gave it to the National Guard. The National Guard had no experience in dealing with uh, this type of situation. Did you know, the governor told us to do whatever it took to, to um, eradicate the problem and to solve the problem. These are quotes from the speech that I'm giving you that he gave and the mayor gave uh, um, uh, at Fire Hall at on, fire, Sunday. on Sunday afternoon. You know, they called us, said that we were worse than the brown shirts, the night riders, and the vigilantes. And so, uh, the worst type of people, I believe, is what governor, the, worst, the governor said. Yeah, the worst type of people we harbor in our society, to finish the quote. And so, uh, yeah, that's the atmosphere that the National Guard was dealing with. It's Sunday, May 3rd. Larry Dispro and his friends decide to go look at the damage at the RTC building. He brings his camera along and check the, the Facebook and the website. We'll have some of those incredible pictures Larry took during that weekend in Larry sees the militarization of his campus, and he goes up to talk to some of these guardsmen. They're young people just like him. They're in their early 20s, and Larry approaches one of the guardsmen with some of his friends. Uh, I, I just asked him, and, I, and I, I didn't mean to be flip about it, but I said, well, what kind of ammunition are you carrying? And he flipped over the, the one from OU. The, 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 the trooper opened up his bag, and he pulled out a full metal jacket, which was a, a full clip of ammunition. Well, um, Having watched movies like everybody else, I thought, well, they had to be fake. I mean, they couldn't have been uh, real ammunition because there's no way that that um, they would be loaded with with real ammunition. Um, and so um, he said, uh, they says they that's the only thing they issued us. They didn't issue us rubber bullets. They didn't issue us anything else. This is what we have. And so as as we walked away, I, you know, I I, I said to my attorney brother, I says, there's no way that that's that's real live ammunition. I said, there's it's, it's just not a possibility. So that was the belief that we had, that they weren't really really armed with live ammunition. On Sunday night, there's more unrest. The victory bell begins ringing again. A hastily organized student protest begins to march around campus and march to the commons. 
around six or seven o'clock. There would be a, um, a protest that Sunday night. And then, um, so we, uh, we went back to the house and uh, midterms were coming up on Monday. So we did some studying and caught a little uh, nap or two. And then uh, we headed back down, got there a little after six o'clock and the bell was ringing. And uh, as it turned out, my fraternity brothers and I, we got, we got you know, right up front. I mean, it was right by the, by the bell itself. And, the, um, and I had never seen this individual that was talking. And um, they were, in my opinion, very unorganized. It was obviously a last minute get together. And they said, well, you know, basically, what do you want to do? And some of the kids says, well, let, let's march. And he says, okay, let's march. <laughs> and, and so that's what we did. We, we marched towards um, the Music and Speech building. And then, um, um, then we, we meandered through campus and we headed up towards Bowman Hall uh, up in front of the... Uh, Memorial Gymnasium area, and um, that's when the, the first line of National Guard appeared. And um, at that point, they, um, uh, without warning, there was no, you must disperse, they just immediately began lobbing tear gas in. And um, I said to my fraternity brother uh, at that point, because uh, I really didn't get a real good whiff of it, of it, but you got enough that your eyes were watering a little bit. I said, I, th I think our work's done here for today. So we, uh, we, we, we scattered and we headed back towards uh, Main Street and we, we bellied down through uh, uh, the president's house, President Rodike White's house. And, um, and there was just so much activity now. There were helicopters in the air. There were you know, kids running every which way. And um, I, I, I came up with a brilliant idea is why don't we just sit down? If we just sat down, uh, they'd obviously see the word non-combatants and we're not hurting any, we're just, we're just gonna sit. And there's only three of us. And uh, just as soon as we sat down, the bushes around the house, they parted. And a guardsman came out and said, get up and go now or you will be arrested. Uh, it's now gone. It's a, the corner of uh, Lincoln Street and Main Street. We, we stood there and the kids had uh, sat in and had actually blocked the, 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 the four-way road. It, was, it really was a four-way stop there. And um, it, was, it, was, it was obviously clogged. Uh, <clears throat> the, the kids were chanting. Uh, the usual, you know, the, the pigs off campus, those types of things. And, um, you know, for the, the oddest thing happened at that point, though, Alex, is it was a, a utility worker change, <laughs> changing a light or something. I'm not sure exactly what happened, but um, a sheriff's department, um, a Portage County car came down Lincoln Street and was trying to make a quick turn, uh, obviously to avoid the kids, but he clipped the ladder of the utility worker as he's trying to head west. And now the guy's hanging from the, the um, from, from the light. Now, I'm sure that he could have probably just dropped down and had been okay, but the kids immediately got under, under him and formed this human uh, net and said, you know, <laughs> drop, drop, drop. And he dropped, and it was, it was kind of a comical scene at that point. You know, he bows and thanks the students, and, you know, another guy picked up his ladder and they walked off. And then, and then, and then the trouble started. But there was no real communication. That was one of the biggest problems with Kent State and why things got so out of hand. There was no leadership. The school was not in control. The town police force was not in control. The mayor was not in control. The governor, who has control over the entire state, he wasn't in control. He had ceded control to the adjutant general of the Ohio National Guard. He and his soldiers had no training for this kind of situation. None at all. The general on the ground, there was the adjutant Del Corso, but the general on the ground was Robert Canterbury. 
And it was him and his officers who were in control of Kent State at that time. Uh, the discussion became pretty clear that, um, you know, maybe the problem, real problem here now is that the National Guard is here. And that maybe it's time for these guys to get out of here because they had the problems on Friday night. And at the Portage County Sheriff's Department, the Kent State University Police and the City of Kent Police were able to handle the disturbance. And now to bring in this National, the National Guard, uh, it kind of militarized it. And I think that that was probably a, a huge mistake. Well, and, you know, that order is given by Governor Rhodes, right. who's, you know, in the middle of the final days of a primary race where he's trying to get that silent majority that Nixon relied upon to, w to win years earlier. Um, but I think we can all agree that the National Guard certainly escalated things. I would, I, in my humble opinion, absolutely. A popular refrain, a thing that happened both to Larry and Dean that weekend and other students who were there, the guard and the police, they would tell them that if they just disperse or if they just do this or do that, the president, the school president will be out or the administration will be out to talk to them and talk about their grievances and see if they can reach a solution. And uh, a bullhorn came out and an officer said that um, uh, if you clear campus, if you go back onto campus, uh, university officials will come and meet with you and we will address your concerns. So if you could just move back onto campus, uh, that's what happened. So. The, the, the students took that as uh, a show of good faith and began to get up and they start to move. And at that point, we were going to cross the street and join them. But just as they got up and started moving back, here comes the tear gas and uh, fixed bayonets and across the street they're coming. And it was this madhouse again. I went, well, I guess we're not going to be meeting with anybody tonight. Campus had become a militarized zone. Canterbury had ordered additional troops, additional firepower and they were moving about campus. Dean Kaler had been pushed back into his dorm that night after being out in the protesting and in the, in the excitement that was, that was going around campus. And he gets into his dorm and he looks out his window. Of course, you could look out the windows and see the, the two and a half ton trucks with the personnel riding in the back. You could see the armored personnel carriers driving around. You could see the helicopters flying between the dormitory rooms. Uh, and as I said, you could watch troops marching in formation around the campus. I mean, we were in an occupied war zone at that point in time, and uh, it was really scary. Monday morning, May 4th, 1970, one of the darkest days in U.S. and certainly in Ohio history. Dean Kaler calls in and calls into the office and, and tells him that he's not coming to class that morning. But Larry Dispro has a midterm, and he has a, a midterm in political geography, and he goes to class that day. Um, there's a huge rally planned for the Commons again at noon. Students are pouring in. It's a, it's a bit more of a commuter campus than it is now. And as Dean pointed out to me when we met, students from Youngstown and Canton and Akron and Cleveland would drive in. And sometimes they'd drive in on Monday and they'd only be there for a few hours. Um, but thousands of more students are on campus on Monday morning. And Larry Dispro, one of those students, has a midterm to take. I find it so, so odd and almost surreal that you take a midterm that morning. Do you remember what class that was? Political geography. It was the same class. Yeah, it was my political geography class. So 
you take the test and you you know the test ends right around noon um just talk about you know kind of you finish the test and you, and you start walking out of the class and and you basically walk right into you know a national disaster that well yeah it's uh well the first thing is that the, the professor was pretty certain that they would close the university as a precaution and all of us thought they're not going to close kent state university they're not going to and so, but he said, just in case, he put his phone number, home phone number up on the, on the board. And, um, and as I walked out, as I turned my test in to leave, I said to him, I said, uh, see, on Wednesday, I was confident that, that things weren't going to escalate anymore. But then as soon as I hit the hall, in front of every door at McGilvery Hall, there was a, um, there was a uh, National Guardsman. Uh, uh, and uh, I, I guess I just stopped, and because... We were coming out a little at a time because as we finished the test, you could leave. That's how it was. And so when I came out of the door and there he was, I, I just kind of stopped and looked at him and he said, you know, quit gawking, get moving. Mm -hmm. So out I went. I went out the door. And uh, again, uh, same scenario. I was to, to meet my uh, girlfriend, uh, fiance at the time, uh, actually at Music and Speech Building. So I was going to head for the commons. Dean Kaler, on the other hand, has left his dorm and he's on his way to his first ever anti-war rally as he makes his way towards the commons around 12 o'clock. First, they came out and said that we were gathered illegally. You, know, you tell 5,000 people you're gathered illegally on their own campus. Mm -hmm. It's noontime, and, uh, and you've got you know, not even 100 National Guard troops right there confronting us. Uh, you know, students are not going to take that lying down. You know, there was a lot of chance saying, you know, as they did, as I mentioned earlier. And I think at the same time, too, the National Guard went back to their their lines and a few minutes later they came out and actually read the Ohio Revised Code Riot Act to us at that point in time. I'm, hopefully they've done something to it so it's not so crazy but probably not. And um, you know that was greeted with more uh, Bronx cheers and the like and uh, they went back to their lines and uh, of course all this drew kids throwing stones but nobody is uh, you know, from era of baseball I liked with Kenny Lofton who could play center field and throw a strike to home plate from center field. Uh, none of us were athletes of that nature. There were I, no Loftons in the crowd. There were no center fielders in the crowd, uh, major league center field. So, uh, you know, some of us threw some stones, but uh, nothing got even close to hitting them. I think one stone rolled up and hit the wheel of the Jeep that was out the last time they came and read the riot act to us. But the most notable that afternoon was them putting on their riot gear, putting on their gas mask, putting on their helmets, putting on their gloves, uh, checking their ammunition with their M1 rifles. You could see them slap the, the slides back and forth and fixing their bayonets on the end of their, of, of their rifles. And then you saw them form up in lines. Uh, it looked like two small companies or two small patrols or whatever they're called. And, uh, and then they started shooting tear gas out of these tubes that were attached to uh, uh, stocks, shotgun or rifle stocks. And you could see them flying through the air. They were about five inches long, about two inches in diameter, and they were leaking smoke. And because it's a bowl, it reminded me of the old Cleveland Municipal Stadium. So the wind was blowing that day, so this stuff was just swirling around. It was getting really diluted, but, but everybody was getting a little dose of some sort, and I got some too. What Dean's describing is what I call the dance. In the 60s, there was basically a choreographed dance between the police, law enforcement, National Guard, and the protesters. They would, they would tell you you're gathered illegally. You would, get, you would yell at them. 
They would say that you have to disperse. You would remain. They would put on their riot gear. They would fire tear gas. You would throw it back. They would fire more tear gas in advance, and you would either walk away or you'd throw the tear gas back or rocks. But this dance, was it never escalated much past that. Sometimes you'd see some hand-to-hand fighting with police and riot gear and a few protesters, but it never escalated to the point that it did on May 4th, 1970 with the Ohio National Guard and the Kent State University students. Larry are not far away from each other at this point. Larry describes what he saw of the dance that we just described from, from his vantage point. And they start lobbying the tear gas in to disperse the crowd. Um, I saw students cover their mouths with their coats and start throwing the canisters back. Um, I, I, I saw those thrown. Uh, their guard reported later that stones and concrete and all kinds of other stuff was thrown. I never saw any of that. And again, maybe it was my vantage point, but all I saw was kids picking up the, the canisters and throwing them back. Both Larry and Dean described the wind that day. And Dean got a little bit of the tear gas, but Larry got it way worse. The wind took it right into him and his, the group of people that he was with. Maybe the most interesting report I, I, I read was that, that the tear gas had no effect on the on the crowd. Well, let me tell you something. <laughs> that The wind picked it up and blew it, uh, and uh, it may not have hit the kids right down by the bell, although I can just remember a purple haze down there. That blew back into us, and um, as I remember I mentioned, uh, there's a reason they call it tear gas. That was the most. That was that was a horrible experience. So you couldn't breathe. The eyes were watering. At that point, I, I took off and went right straight to Johnson Hall, which was the closest hall, trying to, to find a water fountain or something to kind of calm things down. And uh, and uh, I, I stayed in that hall for uh, in Johnson for a while. Um, again, it seems like a real long time, but it probably wasn't that long time until it was cleared again. I'm still thinking I've got to get to the music and speech building, and then that's when that's when it happens. It's about twelve twenty. On Monday, May 4th, 1970, the time for talking is over. There's no more instructions, no more reading of the Ohio Riot Act or telling them that this is an illegal uh, gathering on the commons. It's begun dispersing the crowd, sending people running back down the hill away from the, from the National Guard. And people are dispersing. The giant group that was closer to the bell is not nearly the same number of people as before. Dean Kaler circles around behind the National Guard and tries to keep a fair distance of about 100 yards between him and the guardsmen, thinking that he would be safe, or so he thought. Uh, they started to march back up the hill towards Taylor Hall, and I thought, okay, well, I'll follow along behind them. I'm not going to get closer than I am now. And I remember crossing the road and going along the side of the fence of the practice football field and dropping down in it and diagonally went over towards the, the small little dead-end road back there at the foot of the hill of Taylor Hall, and they were at the top of the hill, and I saw them turn and wheel and lift their rifles to their shoulders, and I thought, oh my God, they're gonna shoot their rifles. You know, I grew up on a farm, as I mentioned earlier, and I, I carried a rifle and I carried a shotgun, and what they were doing was very, uh, very close to what I remember doing as a kid when I went rabbit hunting, or I went pheasant hunting. You wheel and you raise your rifle and you start to shoot. You know, you find your target and you shoot. How far away are you from, from, uh, from the I'm guard? close to 100 yards, 98 or 96 yards away, something like that. The National Guard has cleared the hill. Uh, they've come um, heading up over the top of the pagoda, past the pagoda, down towards the practice football field. And um, there were not uh, that many troops. Later I heard there were 28. I obviously didn't count them, but they passed me. 
and um, I, I, we watched them as they were down by the uh, by the practice football field, and um, this never occurred to me, but apparently it occurred to them. They were up against a, a chain link fence. They were they were actually trapped where they're at, and so um, uh, I I think they thought at that time they were going to uh, that their lives were in danger. But I have to tell you, as God is my witness, this protest was over. That tear gas had cleared that field, and I I could count, I could count the number of people that were on that hill at the time, including myself and others, that were really trying to wait to cross, that were going to cross Prentice Hall a lot and head for the, um, and, and look for me heading for Music and Speech Building. And um, you could hear uh, the commander, uh, the officer yelling out commands, and it, it struck me as funny. It sounded like an old cartoon character, like Dudley Do-Right. He, he was like, a, you know, don't, don't shoot the non-combatants. It was, a, it was, it was bizarre. Again, it was one of those, those kind of just chuckled. It was like a, and then um, at that point, then um, they, they formed back up and they started heading back and they passed right in front of me, 20 yards maybe, heading back up towards the pagoda. And other people around me were talking and chatting like, you know, hey, it's over, time to go back to class, we're taking midterms here. And uh, they, uh, they started to cross and for whatever reason, I did not cross. I waited, I said, I thought to myself, I'm gonna wait till they clear the top of the hill. Because I'm gonna tell you, there was nobody around them, and, and the only thing they could have seen at the top of the hill was a hundred plus more National Guardsmen at the bottom of the hill. There was just no one there, and there were maybe um, as they got to the top of the hill, there were like ten or fifteen kids that were still chanting or or or, or, or whatever, um, and, and then uh, uh, I got to tell you, Alex, um, I'll go to my grave. They turned in unison and started to fire. It's 1224, and this is the point in the story where the shooting starts. It's the point where Dean and Larry's story, although they don't know each other and still don't to this day, is where their story sadly meets. We start with Dean and his recollection when the shooting started at 1224, those 13 seconds when 67 shots rang out across the campus. I remember jumping on the ground, covering my head, hoping I wouldn't get hit. Then I realized that all these bullets were hitting the ground around me, and I'm wondering, why are they shooting at me? I haven't done anything. I'm 100, almost 100 yards away from these people. And uh, the bullets were actually, I could hear them going zzzz, right into the ground. And then I thought, oh, God, this isn't good. And then all of a sudden, I got hit. And it felt like a bee sting. Uh, it burnt. And I didn't roll over and flail and flop around like you see in Hollywood. I mean, it was just like, it was almost instantaneous. I knew exactly what had happened to me. I started walking as some of the other folks had started to walk. Um, might have, they, they'd have had me. <laughs> but they, uh, um, the ground started to percolate. Um, and that's when I realized these aren't rubber bullets, folks. They were really shooting at us. And uh, it was that helplessness that I, I saw. Um, I saw a student struck. You saw someone get shot in the so back? I saw someone get hit in the back. They had hit the ground. And that's when I said my first instinct should have been to help, but I didn't. I, I turned and beat feet up because, you know, who knows? I mean, we were obviously unarmed and we couldn't defend. We couldn't defend ourselves. Not that we would have anyway. Just to, you know, we were. Uh, uh. That person Larry saw shot was Dean Kaler, shot in the back, shot in the spine. I always found it weird that 
Larry still beats himself up almost 47 years later for not rushing over to help Dean while the shooting was still going on. Of course he ran. Um, That's what anyone would do when your government starts opening fire on you. You would run. While Dean's on the ground, he's been shot in the spine. And then after my initial shock of my getting shot and knowing what was going on, you know, I could still hear bullets hitting the ground around me in this 13 seconds, which seemed like forever. And then I prayed again that I would not get hit, and I did not get hit. I was just very thankful. And then, you know, of course, during the shooting, there was chaos and screaming and hollering. But when the shooting stopped, there was a lull. It got real quiet for a couple of seconds. And then all of a sudden, the chaos and the screaming erupted again. But this time, the, the pitch and the tenor were much higher and much more terrifying and much more terrified uh, than it was during the shootings because now people were lying on the ground bleeding to death. There were people on the ground who could not get up. There were lifeless people who were you know, dying uh, on the blacktop and others of us who were wounded lying on the ground. Was that um, there were no no guard medics there? There were no guardsmen medics. There was nobody. You could hear the siren. Remember the sirens in the background, and, and they, they were coming. But um, it really, it was the students were there to, to minister the immediate uh, the first aid. And, and uh, at that point, um, I, uh, I I'm not sure again about the time, but I remember going down the east side of Taylor Hall and began to meander down, and I saw kids beginning to sit down on the other side of the bell and we're sitting down and so I meandered over to there and I just sat down there and I just sat there and cried. <laughs> At 12.24 p.m. on May 4th, 1970, the Ohio National Guard opened fire on Kent State students. Four lay dead, nine wounded, none more seriously than Dean Kaler, who would spend the rest of his life paralyzed from the chest down. The dead included Jeffrey Miller, age 20, Allison Krauss, age 19, William Schroeder, age 19, and Sandy Schur, age 20. All of the casualties, including the wounded, were all Kent State students. None were outside agitators. In the official newspaper article the next day in the New York Times, the National Guard would cite that a sniper had fired upon them, and that's why they had fired upon the students. That was never substantiated. In fact, the Scranton Commission report and every eyewitness report since then has said that there was no sniper shooter. There was no proof of that. No one was ever found. Um, and thousands of people were there that day. They would, someone would have heard. But that was what they went with. That was their story, that they had been fired upon first. But that is categorically and completely untrue. There was no justification for the shooting. They were in no imminent danger. The guardsmen, the 27 or 28 men who did fire their weapons, were yards, many yards, and, and almost everyone who was hit was between 100 and 200 yards away. They simply fired upon them, and it was simply murder. Murder by our government of its own citizens in broad daylight. Minutes after the shooting, students began to sit on the hill 
and they're surrounded by teachers, including, of course, Professor Glenn Frank. They began to calm each other down, try to discuss and process what had just happened. Many were still angry, obviously. And our Larry Dispro was there on the hill. And then I remember one kid that was covered in blood. He got up and, and said, let's go get him. And, and, and he was jerked right back down and, and said, no, hey, we're, we're done here. And, um, and uh, so as, as Dr. Frank is, is talking with us um, at the top of the hill, and again, I'm not sure because as I looked out where the original staging area was, I only saw a few guardsmen still there. There were not you know, hundreds of guardsmen at that point. But um, now up on top of Taylor Hill, uh, fixed bayonets, they were advancing again. They were coming down the hill. And that's when uh, Mr. Frank went up and, and said to, as I learned later, was an agent was Canterbury, and asked if he had time to, you know, what, why were he advancing? He says they have orders from the governor to clear this field. The National Guard is moving again. General Canterbury is going to clear the field, as he says. They've already fired upon the students once, and it appears that they might do so again. We're going to play you two clips. Two of the teachers, Professor Braun first, and then Professor Glenn Frank, who we spoke of throughout the episode, go to speak to General Canterbury to tell him to stop and to plead for more time to get the students to disperse. You'll hear Braun complaining and trying to get Canterbury to realize just how terrible the situation is, and you'll hear Canterbury almost unmoved. And then you'll hear Professor Frank in the second clip saying, how much time can you give us? How much time will you give us? And Canterbury says, five minutes. Well, listen, you've got to stop this. This is turning into a slaughter. Well, you seem to be unmoved by it. It's a terrible thing. These are, high, these are college kids. Look, this is a problem. Listen, I, and I was in the military. I know about this killing stuff. They will not, do they will not make any trouble. You can... We have no option. No. Sir, you've got a couple hundred students there who might get hurt. Are you, are you all right? Can we try to move them out first? Can we try to move them out? Will you give us a chance? How long will you give us? General Canterbury seems intent on finishing the job, clearing the field by whatever means necessary, including shooting and killing United States citizens. Glenn Frank realizes just how unmoved and how determined Canterbury is to carry, this, to carry out his final objective. He runs back to the students, and he makes a heartfelt plea for them to disperse. Please listen to me right now. Wait a minute, wait a minute. I am begging you right now. If you don't disperse right now, they're going to move in, and there can only be a slaughter. Jesus Christ, I don't want to be a part of this. Please, I'm begging you also, follow me out this way. You can hear the terror in Professor Frank's voice. He knows that the guard's going to come up and they will remove the students. They've just fired upon them just minutes ago. Instead of seeing the error of their ways, they're moving in for the kill. Larry Dispro's there, and he remembers sitting on the hill and seeing the guard coming for them one more time. <laughs> 
And so he came back down and, and he broke into tears and said, uh, if, uh, the, you know, all of us, you know me. I said, I've ever done any, I don't want to be a part of this. He said, uh, you know, you've, you've got to get out of here now. You've got to get up and go. Well, you don't know what to do. I mean, you look around, you've got armored personnel carriers coming down the one hill, and you've got the bayonets fixed uh, troops in front of us and coming down the other side of this hill. And I said, well, where are we supposed to go at this point? You know, and, and then, and then, um, uh, what I call a miracle of Kent State, and I and I all the reports I read about about the incident, I I see very little ever mentioned about the Highway Patrol. Uh, they put themselves between us and the guard. Let's take a quick break. Ooh. Larry and the students on the hill are spared. The Ohio Highway Patrol steps in between the oncoming guardsmen and the students gives them time to get out of there. They actually help get the students out of, out of the commons in small groups. You can still hear it in Larry's voice. The fear that his government, that their troops were coming down the hill to shoot them, to kill them. It's just hard to believe it. It's something you'd see in, you know, you saw in Tiananmen Square in China in 1989. It's something you see in countries with dictatorships and we saw in the Arab Spring and in Syria where your government opens fire on your citizens is never something we thought we'd see in America. And we did in Ohio on May 4th, 1970. In the meantime, Dean Kaler is fighting for his life. The ambulance finally arrived and they took him in what was basically a hearse at that point to Robinson Memorial Hospital in Ravenna, where almost all the students, I believe, were taken that were shot and killed. Uh, it seemed like it took forever, but they finally got there. They loaded me on the truck in the ambulance and took me to Robinson Memorial Hospital. But the biggest thing that I noticed as I was being driven out of the campus was the fact that at every telephone pole, as I got to Main Street, on Main Street, all along the area where the campus was, there were telephone repairmen up on the telephone lines. Not just one pole or two pole, about a half a dozen stretch along that stretch going towards Ravenna, uh, feed into the university, and there were telephone men on the poles. And this is 20 minutes after the shootings. Uh, somebody knew something. It's something we hear from, from Larry and from Dean um, and any report after the shooting. The phones didn't work. Minutes after the shooting, it appears the government shut down all phone lines. They shut down all communications. To I don't know whether it was to keep the story from getting out or be able to shape the story before eyewitnesses could be reached, but the phones were completely shut down. And Larry mentioned that the phones were out as well at following the shooting. And then the phones went dark. The phones just went blank. I'm not sure what happened at that point. I'm, and the reports, I've never got an explanation as if it was because it was the overload of the, of the, of the system, because obviously there's no cell phones or anything back then. Um, if it was the overload or if it was just for um, authority use only, and, uh, but I don't know. Dean goes into surgery. He's put into a medically induced coma, and he doesn't wake up until early Friday morning. He learns from a nurse that he is paralyzed and he would spend the rest of his life in a wheelchair. 
it was disheartening. It was uh, discouraging, but uh, I had a life to live, and I had to figure out how I'm going to live in this wheelchair the rest of my life. Uh, there's more to life than one day in my life. That's just essential Dean Kaler. Meeting him was just such a treat. He's so optimistic. A man who went on to accomplish many things in his life. Uh, a county, two-time county commissioner, a teacher, uh, has done so much despite uh, the hand that he was dealt. And he was just incredible, incredible to meet and talk to. As was, as was Larry Dispro, just an incredible man. Uh, someone who still carries this burden with him. I don't I, I hate to call it survivor's guilt, but I, get, I guess my first thought was I went through this period where when I saw someone get shot that I didn't run to that person uh, because they were still shooting. I, and, and, and I left the scene. And I think that that bothers me to this day that I didn't do anything. And, I, until, and then when I finally collected myself and tried to get back out there to help, it was, you know, that other students had already stepped in and that the kids were coming out of the dorms that, you know, to, to help. And, um, and I didn't. That, that dwells on me. That, that, I, that didn't help. Um, I know, I, uh, you know, my uh, fiance uh, broke up with me. Obviously, she um, had made a statement to me that uh, if I'd have been killed, she could have justified it because I was ordered to leave. You know, we were told to disperse, wow. and um, so that ended a five-year relationship that uh, that was a crusher. Uh, Larry brings up a fascinating point. The national opinion was split. You would think that all of the compassion and would go to the students and the blame would go to the to the National Guardsmen for firing on unarmed peaceful protesters but that wasn't the case uh, if not a majority a near majority of Americans blamed the entire shooting on the Kent State students that was the national sentiment people had had enough myself personally I can't imagine Feeling that way in the aftermath of that, but Larry's even Larry's fiance said that it was his fault, and if he had been shot, that his killing would have been justified. His fraternity brother said, "This is all your fault. You were on the hill." What do you think about the shooting at Kent? Uh, the people weren't uh, behaving properly, and apparently they have asked for that sort of thing. So you think the guard was, was justified? Yes, I do. I'm sorry they didn't kill more. Really? Yes, because they were warned and they knew what was happening and they should have moved out. If that's what it took to break them up, well, then that's what it takes. It just blows my mind. Dean Kaler, meanwhile, who's in Robinson Memorial Hospital, recovering from his gunshot to his spine, starts getting mail. And not all of it's nice. So when you're, you get mail, do you get mail? This, I mean, you got some hate mail, you got some positive mail, but I mean, do you get that stuff while you're still in the hospital? I'm assuming you were in the hospital for a while after after you were you were yeah. shot. I was in Robinson Memorial for three weeks before they transferred me to a rehabilitation center up in Cleveland called Highland View Hospital. And yeah, so I got a lot of mail. Uh, the first card that I opened up uh, when I was conscious enough to actually be alert and aware, and they took all the tubes out of me, uh, it was a really lovely looking card from the outside. But when I opened it up, the the letter that was inside of it where they wrote on the inside wall, uh, was Dear Communist Hippie Radical. I hope by the time you read this, you are dead. And it just went on with hate speech, as we call it now, uh, just uh, calling me every filthy name you could think, accusing me of uh, overthrowing the government and being, being unpatriotic and uh, 
you know, being the scum of the earth. And Three days after the shooting, Larry gets a knock at his door. Campus is closed. 400 schools, universities go on strike. Ohio State shut down for the rest of the year where my mother was going at the time. College campuses erupt. But on Thursday, three days after the shooting, Larry gets a knock at the door. Well, standing at my door on May the 7th with two um, uh, uh, Federal Bureau of Investigators, FBI, uh, one gal, one guy, um, uh, they had identified my picture in the opposite. They called it the observation crowd. They identified me because, and I said, well, that was easy enough. I had my turkey jacket on. I was one with the turkey jacket and the books. And... uh, they, uh, they identified it and they, they took my, my statement and um, that was probably the, the rawest, freshest view I had right then of the statement I gave and, and um, I said I, I felt that, um, that they had turned and shot, that they had turned on in unison and they had been given a command to, to fire and they asked me, did you hear the command? I, no, I did not. Did you see the command? Uh, maybe. I, you know, I, I'm thinking, uh, your brain plays tricks on you. It's just that the thing I'm absolutely sure about is that they they turned in unison, and 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 I don't know of any ever ever anybody in the military that would have just turned in unison without a command. I I don't know. They claim they didn't have one, but I don't know. Um, but anyway, I was interviewed and found that uh, kind of shocking that they had found me that quick. <laughs> the country erupts, like we said, four hundred different schools go on, students go on strike. Friday, there's a giant protest in New York City that turns violent. It's construction workers and protesters fight it out on the steps of the old U.S. Treasury in Wall Street while the traders sit there and cheer them on. An enormous rally is planned for Saturday. It'll be May 9th, five days after the shooting. And on Friday night, Nixon gives a press conference. He didn't give very many of those. And he comes out and he faces just a barrage of questions. The country is being ripped apart. What do you think the students are trying to say in this demonstration? They're trying to say that they want peace. Uh, They're trying to say that uh, they want to stop the killing. They're trying to say that they want to end the draft. They're trying to say that we ought to get out of Vietnam. I think I understand what they want. Uh, I, I would hope they would understand somewhat what I want. Uh, briefly, this country is not headed for revolution. Inaugural address. You said that one of your goals was to bring us together in America. You said that you wanted to bring peace to Vietnam. It seemed that we're farther ever from those goals. How do you account for this apparent failure? Nixon's beginning to crack. His aides are saying that the this terrible week leading up to and following the shootings, the just massive demonstrations against him, the giant demonstration that's planned for for Saturday. There, the entire 92nd Airborne is sleeping in the White House. The White House is ringed by buses, and they're prepared to shoot, to fight off protesters if they try to storm the White House. That's what they thought was going to happen on Saturday. The Army is prepared to fight it out with protesters at 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue to protect the president's life. Nixon stays up all night. He's making phone calls. And he decides at 4 in the morning, I believe he'd had a few drinks knowing Nixon, he gets his his car, uh, he gets his driver Manolo, 
And he says, Manolo, I want to go to the Lincoln Memorial. He's clearly lost it, but he goes to the Lincoln Memorial where thousands of students and protesters are camping out for the night as they're going to have a giant protest there in the mall on Saturday. And he goes and he meets with protesters. And he made some notes afterwards, um, just on a little recorder. And so, yeah, they're kind of quiet, but I think it's one of the most surreal things that's ever occurred. That Nixon goes to the center of these demonstrations and meets with protesters. And he's I'm not talking five minutes. He's there for maybe not an hour, but he's there for at least a half hour or so talking to people. Um, and it's clear that, that this week in Kent State and everything has gotten to him. And he goes to plead his case with them and even a little bit listen to what they have to say. I said, I'm sorry they had missed it because I had tried to explain in the press conference that my goals in Vietnam were the same as theirs, to stop the killing, to end the war, to bring peace. Our goal was not to get into Cambodia by what we were doing, but to get out of Vietnam. There seemed to be no, they, they did not respond. I hope that their hatred of the war, which I could well understand, would not uh, turn into a bitter hatred of, of, of our whole system, our country and everything that it stood for. I said, I know you think I'm, that probably most of you think I'm an SOB, but uh, I want you to know that I understand just how you feel. I know most of you think I'm an SOB. Uh, Nixon. Saturday's protest is massive in Washington, D.C., but mostly peaceful. Nobody storms the White House. The 82nd Airborne doesn't have to fire upon its own citizens. And as we close this episode, I want to listen to a statement that was made by one of the victim's fathers, Allison Krauss, 19. He makes a statement. He makes a plea to the Nixon administration in the country and just describes what I think perfectly with the emotion of a, of a grieving father, um, grieving for his country, and just how far off the rails we had come in May of 1970. In the violence that day, four Kent State students were killed. Two were girls. The father of 19-year-old Allison Krauss of Pittsburgh reacted emotionally to the news of his daughter's death. She resented being called a bum because she disagreed with someone else's opinion. She felt that war in Cambodia was wrong. Is this dissent a crime? Is this a reason for killing her? Have we come to such a state in this country that a young girl has to be shot because she disagrees deeply with the actions of her government? From Garfield's tomb to the serpent mound From the big cities to the river towns First in flight making history There's so many books you need to see I like reading And I like reading Tippecanoe and Tyler too From the Queen City to Lake Erie Blue Edison and a man on the moon so many books, which will we choose? I like reading I like reading 
This episode's book recommendation, we're going to look at 67 Shots, Kent State and the End of American Innocence. It's a 2016 book just written last year by Howard Means. Um, Dean Kaler is interviewed in that book in a couple different parts. But it is just an absolutely, I think, the best book that's been written about Kent State. Not only because it's the most recent, but I just think uh, Howard Means does a great job of looking at it from all angles. Um, especially, you know, one part we didn't look at as much was the aftermath. Um, Dean Kaler goes through, you know, almost nine years trying to get a settlement with the other victims' families from the from the government. Um, ultimately winning at the U.S. Supreme Court and receiving uh, a small amount of money in 1979. We also didn't look at the Scranton report, the congressional um, committee report that shows that the National Guard was completely out of line, that no one fired upon them, and that their actions were completely unwarranted. But Means's book, uh, 67 Shots, Kent State and the End of American Innocence, uh, 2016, gets into all that stuff, all the stuff leading up to it. The shootings talks to so many different witnesses. It is a really great book. If you want to learn more about Kent State and what happened, um, I ask you to get that book. That's going to do it for today's episode, the first episode, Ohio versus the Nixon administration. I know it was a long one. We'll normally keep these to about 45 minutes to an hour. We had to cut out a lot of great stuff. Um, I can't thank Dean Kaler and Larry Dispro enough. Um, I know it's an emotional topic to talk about, and they were so giving of their time. To sit down and talk about it, we know it's not easy, um, but it's we don't want history to repeat itself. and People need to know about what happened 47 years ago at Kent State University. I think it's important. Um, so I want to thank them so much. They were great. Um, feel free to rate and review the podcast. Share it with your friends. Check us out on Facebook, Ohio V. The World. Check out the website, OhioVTheWorldPodcast.com. Check us out on Stitcher. Um, we have an Instagram page. You can check out some of Larry's photos. Um, and again, special thanks, of course, to our theme music today. Uh, for the entire first season, it's our friends Forrest and the Evergreens. You can check them out. Uh, they're playing around the region. Uh, it's their song Try off their 2016 album Young Funk. Thanks to those guys for being such big supporters of the podcast. Don't forget, the podcast is also part of a nonprofit. We're raising money to give away to high school seniors for an audio and video essay contest. Uh, so you can donate by going to our website ohiovtheworldpodcast.com click on donate um, and you can get involved that way uh, don't forget to hit us up on facebook let us know what you think if there's some topics we need to discuss and we'll see you next time i'm your host alex hasty this is ohio the world This is Peter. And this is Tom. We want to tell you guys a little bit about our podcast. Tom and I met in college, became best friends, and then teachers almost 20 years ago. Sometimes school just does not allow us to elaborate on the topics that we find interesting, like the real shark attacks that inspired the movie Jaws, or the real historical context to Indiana Jones artifacts. Where does cereal come from? Or are zombies real? Does Ben Franklin really deserve to be on a $100 bill? On our podcast, just like in our class, there are no stupid questions.
Just two friends having a lighthearted conversation about history, pop culture, and the context of current events. Listen to History Teachers Talking Podcast from Evergreen Network, anywhere you get your podcasts.